The year is 1773 in the American colonies, and revolution is in the air. From the cobblestone pathways of Boston to the grassy fields of Virginia, English subjects are saying openly and in writing things they would never dream of uttering. Because, for centuries, the mere mention of it has guaranteed the hangman's noose. Their provocative proclamations? We want freedom from the king, and we want it now. Yet, in Charleston, South Carolina, as a wealthy tobacco planter hosts a dinner party at his grand mansion, guests are willing to put their revolutionary fervor aside for the evening and enjoy the fineries. Visitors are dressed to the nines in the latest 18th century fashions, powdered wigs, hoop petticoats, and depending on how rich you are, embroidered silk gowns. You see, while colonists despise the monarchy, they sure do enjoy looking the part. But one young woman stands out from the crowd. She's about 20 years old. Her dress is decorated with a crown sewn in gold thread. And it's not just her outfit. It's clear from her manner that she's a cut above the rest. Who is she? There's chatter she might be the heir of a shipping fortune. Others swear she must be related to the great George Washington himself. Whoever she is, she sure looks rich. She's thin and pale, almost waifish. But what she lacks in size, she makes up for in charisma. No longer leaving her origins a mystery, she holds everyone's attention with a tale of woe. In an eloquent English accent, she tells everyone of how her family banished her because she refused to marry a certain lord. Now she's traveling around the colonies, trying to keep her identity a secret by telling anyone within earshot who will listen. But she's dropped some well-timed hints. The guests whisper among themselves as they finally place her identity. Yes, she's the Queen of England's sister. They're in the presence of actual royalty. But then, right in the middle of dinner, a man kicks down the front door. He's dressed in the rough clothes of a traveler. His eyes scan the room, find the princess, and he levels his pistol at her head. He announces to the stunned group that she's no royal. She's an indentured servant who escaped from her master. Her name is Sarah Wilson. But is that true? The guests can't believe it. How could a lowly servant convince everyone she's a member of high society? Well, the answer is simple. Only in America. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Today, we're talking about impersonator extraordinaire Sarah Wilson, a girl born at the very bottom of the social ladder who managed to claw her way up using only her wits. Wilson caused a stir in England and the American colonies where she pulled one elaborate con after another. Getting people to believe that she was an aristocrat, she made her way into the most illustrious homes and may have interacted with a founding father or two. But the story of the real Sarah is harder to piece together. Everything we know about her comes from newspaper articles from the period. And even they can't separate truth from fiction. With no money, no family, and no prospects, how did Wilson manage to do it? How was she so good at pretending to be a member of the elite? And what motivated her to keep running? Sarah Wilson is born in 1745 in the St. James Parish of London. 
In this neighborhood, you're either really rich or really poor. Sarah is definitely the latter. Little is known about her childhood or family, but at some point, she becomes a servant in the house of a man named George Lewis Scott. Scott is a member of the upper crust. His next door neighbor is the Duke of York. So Sarah grows up around wealthy people. She's just their maid, but she observes how they dress, hears how they talk, and learns who's among the aristocracy. Maybe, with some brains and a lot of hard work, Sarah can one day elevate herself in British society, so much so that she can have a seat at the aristocratic table instead of cleaning it? Well, no, not in Sarah's lifetime. A young teenage Sarah dances around George Lewis Scott's ostentatious parlor as she dusts the surfaces and mops the floor. It's a little game she likes to play when she knows nobody's home. As she scrubs his diamond-encrusted mirror, marveling over the 24-karat gold finishings, envisioning what it would be like to one day own something so wonderful, she catches a glimpse of herself. Her hair is knotted. Her face is dirty. The reality of the moment and times comes crashing down on young Sarah. It's 18th century England, and the class you're born into is the class you die in, especially for the poor. A difficult life stretches out before her. She'll never be more than a servant, and she knows it. If she's lucky, her employers won't treat her like dirt. And maybe one day she can marry a tradesman and have a gaggle of screaming children. That is, if she doesn't die in childbirth. Yep, life is tough for lower-class women. There aren't a lot of ways for Sarah to determine her own path. But one thing Sarah's got going for her, she knows how to read. Literacy rates among women in London were pretty high in the 18th century, about two-thirds. But Sarah is a rare bird. She also knows how to write. We don't know how she learned or who taught her, but she must have been smart and determined. Maybe she senses that it's a way out. And what does Wilson do with the skill? She learns, of course. She salvages old newspapers before they get thrown into the fire. She sneaks into her master's library at night when the rest of the household is fast asleep. She probably has to do it in secret because the upper classes don't like seeing the working class reading anything other than the Bible. They think that literature gives them too many ideas. But whatever Wilson gets her hands on, she reads. And reading opens up her world. She learns about the rich and famous whose lives are so different from her own. She devours novels about people who suddenly become rich or fall in love with a lord or get switched at birth. In other words, she reads about people who escape the life that they were born into and live happily ever after. A hunger develops inside Sarah. She realizes that there are more possibilities for her. She isn't going to die a servant. Not her. She wants more. But this is the early modern era. Classism and misogyny are at odds with who she wants to be and where she wants to go. If she's going to achieve what she wants, she's going to have to create her own truth, her own reality. One day in 1764, when Wilson is about 19 years old, she disappears from her job, just takes off without a word. No one knows where she goes, but in autumn of that year, she appears in Surrey, about 42 miles southwest of London. At the humble cottage of a man named Thomas Boxall, there's a knock at the door. Standing in the evening dusk is a young, thin woman with black hair. She has a speck in her right eye that gives her a unique appearance. The road can be dangerous at any hour, but at night it's forbidding. She seeks shelter until dawn. Boxall and his family immediately invite her in. As she warms herself by the hearth, the woman tells the family an intriguing story. 
Her name is Sarah Wilsbrowson, and she's the daughter of a noblewoman. She quarreled with her father, and he kicked her out of the house. Now she's all alone in the world, with nary a friend to help her. Oh, and she has a 90,000-pound fortune waiting for her at a bank in London. Well, this makes the Boxel's ears perk up. They just so happen to have a son who's about Sarah's age. Sure would be convenient of the two of them to, you know, get married. And after a few weeks, that's exactly what happens. The newlyweds decide to head for London to claim that sweet, sweet fortune. And since this new daughter-in-law is a lady, the couple needs to travel in style. Boxel, Sarah's new father-in-law, actually mortgages his farm to pay for their clothes. Once Sarah and her husband are in London, they live it up. Every night they party in taverns where Sarah plays the guitar and sings. And every night, Sarah goes out on errands that she says are related to getting her money. But she always returns with an excuse. On the 10th day, she doesn't return. And her husband never sees her again. It's Sarah's first con. She doesn't get a whole lot from it other than a couple wild nights and some new outfits. But these clothes end up being really important to Sarah's strategy. She needs to look the part of an aristocrat in order to play the part. Sarah's also gotten a taste of something exciting. Her deceit worked. For her next job, it's time to aim a little higher. In 1765, at the age of 20, Sarah appears on the doorstep of Captain George Jackson, secretary to the Navy Board. In other words, he's a big deal. Sarah says she was out for a walk in the neighborhood and suddenly didn't feel well. You know, fainting spells and all that. The family lets her rest on their divan while she fans herself and tells them her story. She calls herself the Honorable Miss Molly No, daughter of a noble lord whose father served in India with Captain Jackson. Then she gives them the tried and not at all true spiel about how her father mistreated her and now she's on her own. At first, the Jacksons take pity on Sarah and try to contact her father. But the longer Sarah stays with them, the harder it is for her to keep her story straight. Before long, they get wise to her con and kick her out of the house. Sorry, Miss Jackson, she's not for real. From this experience, Sarah learns something about the art of the swindle, something that she'll bring with her as she continues to explore this unchartered new route to the upper class. She needs to keep moving, leave before they figure out she's lying. From here on out, Sarah will basically spend her life on the run. But right now, Sarah's main concern is her clothes, which are looking more and more threadbare. If she's going to pass as a fine lady, she needs some new digs. So Sarah decides to target a shopkeeper next. In December 1765, Sarah walks into the clothing store of one Mrs. Davenport. The owner's niece is working the counter that day. And Sarah immediately assails her with her sob story. She's actually of noble birth, but her family has disowned her and kicked her out of the house because she refuses to marry a count, yada, yada, yada. She needs some new clothes and doesn't have any cash, but she does have 100 pounds in the bank if the niece can give her a loan. The niece is enraptured by Sarah's tale. It sounds like the kind of romances she's read about in novels. So she falls for Sarah's trap, hook, line, and sinker. She even lets Sarah stay with her. A few days and a choice outfit later, Sarah announces that they should go to the bank and withdraw that 100 pounds. They take a carriage there, but Sarah's banker conveniently isn't working that day. So they decide to go directly to his house. Sarah tells the niece to wait in the carriage while she goes up to the front door. When a servant answers, Sarah says that she has a message for Molly. 
one of the kitchen maids, the servant lets Sarah into the house. For the niece watching all this from the carriage, it looks like Sarah's just been admitted. But once inside, Sarah simply slips out the back door and escapes into an alley. The shopkeeper's niece waits in the carriage for an hour before realizing she's been duped. Sarah's just pulled off one of her most elaborate cons. She had to gather a whole lot of intel in advance and plan down to the tiny details. And her reward is a fancy new outfit worth about $800 in today's cash. With those clothes, imagine what she can do. But not everyone is fooled. Feeling the heat around the corner, Sarah is faced with a choice. She can quit the con game while she's ahead, go back to the quote-unquote better people, and resume waiting on them hand and foot. Or she can keep going. Something inside of her refuses to let her quit. She knows that she's just as valuable as all those lords and duchesses of the land. And she's not going to let the life that she was born into determine her worth. Sarah quits London until things cool off. Later that month, she's in Cheshire, about 170 miles north. She scopes out the neighborhood, and then she starts dropping in on people. Her first target is a wheelwright, a person who repairs wheels. She gives him and his wife the routine about fleeing from an arranged marriage and how she has a fortune if they'll just let her stay for the night, and they don't buy it. Next, she tries the house of a miller. They don't fall for it either, but at least they take pity on her and let her stay for the night. But it's more out of pity than anything. They worry that there's something not quite right with this traveler, and they want to give her a warm bed and a good meal. The third time's a charm. Sarah makes her way to the house of a yeoman and his family, where she introduces herself as the Viscountess Lady Wilbrahamon. She makes no secret about being extremely rich and promises to scratch their back if they scratch hers. And boy, do they scratch it. They wine her and dine her on the best they can afford. They also give her what she needs most, clothes befitting a wealthy woman. Sarah's decked out in a pale yellow riding habit and a white hat with blue feathers and gold tassels. Now, she really looks the part. Sarah stays at the yeoman's house for five whole months. She charms them so much that the family even makes her the godmother of their baby daughter. Even Sarah starts to surprise herself at how good she's becoming in the dark arts of manipulation and duplicity. Then, in May 1766, a 21-year-old Sarah announces that she's headed to London to claim her inheritance. Surprise! She never comes back. By the middle of 1766, Sarah's craft of the con is bordering on expertise as aristocratic families all around Coventry start receiving visits from someone named Miss Wilbraham, who claims to be, quote, a woman of fashion and fortune. It was common in the 18th century for the gentility to visit each other unannounced, whether they actually knew their hosts or not. They saw it as their duty to entertain guests. So Sarah takes advantage of the fact and goes on a grand tour. But one lord, the Earl of Denby, is on to her. He doesn't believe Sarah's story for a second and asks his alderman to do some investigating. The alderman tracks down Sarah at an inn. He examines her papers where he finds several marriage certificates and he interrogates her and quickly gleans that she isn't actually from the places she says she's from. Throughout the questioning, Sarah plays the innocent victim and she's convincing enough to fool the landlord watching over the alderman's shoulder. When the alderman orders him to not let Sarah leave the inn, the landlord actually gives her money and helps her run off. She, of course, promises to pay him back. But now, the once obscure swindler who traveled safely under the radar is now garnering quite the notorious reputation. So much so that the newspapers pick up on her misadventures. How are they keeping track of her deeds? 
Remember how Sarah has a speck in her right eye? Well, that makes it easier for people to recognize descriptions of her. They figure out she's the same person going by a bunch of different aliases. The Lady Wilbrahamon, the Countess of Normandy, the Baroness of Wilmington, just to name a few. Word quickly spreads around England, and Sarah gets dubbed, quote, the greatest impostress of the present age. It looks like her trail of deceptions have finally caught up with her. By September 1767, at the age of 22, Sarah is in jail at a town called Devices, about 90 miles west of London. At her trial, she gives what's probably the most honest account of her history. She says her name is Sarah Boxall. Remember her first con job and the guy she married? That's her last name. And she admits that her husband is in Surrey and her own family is in London. The judge convicts her of vagrancy and wants to send her back to her husband. But then the people in London read about her in the newspapers. Remember Mrs. Davenport's niece? The shopkeeper Sarah left waiting in the carriage? She recognizes Sarah's description and charges her with defrauding the business. So Sarah's shipped off to London to stand trial again. Prison in London proves to be a lot worse than it is in the country. Sarah winds up in the Westminster House of Correction, which barely provides any food, clothing, medical care, or even baths for its 150 prisoners. It's a nightmare, and Sarah's there for two months. In January 1768, she stands before a stern-looking judge. For her transgressions, he intones, she'll face transportation. That means she's going to be shipped off to the American colonies, where she'll be forced to work as an indentured servant for seven years to pay off the cost of the transportation. In essence, she'll be someone's property. The judge bangs on his gavel, and Sarah's fate is sealed. As Sarah watches the massive ship docking in the chilly London harbor, about to transport her across the sea like common property, she reflects on her life. What is she guilty of, really? Being born with a losing hand and merely trying to make the best of it? Her behavior hasn't been unjust. No, maybe it's the ugly system everyone expects her to remain shackled to that's unjust. She's just merely self-correcting it, using her God-given talents, her wit and her charm to extricate herself from it. She likely doesn't regret stealing from the rich, but stealing from the working class, isn't that what the rich do? Who are they to sit in judgment of her? Besides, at the end of the day, Sarah isn't even being deceitful. Even though nobody else sees it, Sarah knows deep down that she is special. She's like royalty. Everyone else is just too obtuse to notice it. England is too old to see Sarah Wilson for the brilliant bright light that she is. Maybe the new world will recognize her. Well, that is, if she can survive the deadly journey. Not long after, Sarah finds herself on a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. She's crammed into the hold along with 200 other felons. Transport is better than the hangman's noose, which is what would normally have happened to many of Sarah's companions. But the English government decided that criminals were more useful as forced labor than they were dead. Crossing the Atlantic is a form of torture unto itself, especially for convicts. They sleep on boards only 18 inches wide. Practically everyone is seasick and vomit swirls around their feet. Lice as well as fever spread quickly among the crew. About 10% of all transported felons die en route. But Sarah's different. She's strong. She's a survivor. She manages to survive the 12-week journey. But once she arrives in Maryland, the life she faces looks only marginally better. She's put up for auction. And in July 1768, 
23-year-old Sarah is purchased by a tobacco planter named William Duval, who owns land outside of Baltimore. She'll work for him for the next seven years, whether she likes it or not. Or at least that's supposed to be the deal. Turns out, as always, Sarah has other plans. She quickly flees her servitude and heads south for Virginia. If she gets caught, she'll have to serve 10 extra days for every day she was gone. She might also be subject to whipping. In other words, it could turn out very badly. But for Sarah, the prospect of staying in that miserable situation is worse than being caught. She wasn't cut out for a servant's life in England, and she's not cut out for it in America. She has bigger dreams. As she makes her way down the coast, there's one indisputable fact about herself that Sarah Wilson reveals. You can put her anywhere on God's green earth, and she'll find rich people to exploit. And that's exactly what she does. Sarah gleans whatever information she can and sets her eyes on the region's elite families. They're going to be her bread and butter. Somehow along the way, Sarah manages to get a hold of a few accoutrements that will serve her well. A nice outfit, which she embroiders with a crown and the letter B. Also, she has some jewelry and even a small portrait of the Queen of England. And what's Sarah's plan? Well, the American colonies are the perfect place to become what she's always wanted to be. A princess. In America, Sarah does what she did in England, but better. She goes from mansion to mansion, convincing people that she's an aristocrat. And this time, she has to go big because she literally cannot go home. So she claims to be the queen's sister. That's right. Sarah is now Susanna Carolina Matilda, princess of Brattenburg. Hence the B on her dress. That's a lot of names, and she can't always keep them straight. Sometimes her name is Sophia instead of Susanna. Sometimes she's the princess of Brunswick instead of Brattenburg. For the record, the actual Queen of England, Charlotte, had nine siblings, and no one really knew who they were, especially in the colonial American South. Sarah appears to have just jammed a bunch of their names together and called it a day. But hey, in the past, you couldn't just look up the information, and Americans love being in the presence of royalty. Since they're not aristocrats themselves, they're none the wiser whenever Sarah drops a made-up, fancy-sounding name in her refined accent. They eat up Sarah's story like cake. Some even grovel so much they kiss her hand. Whereas in England, she faced an, at times, suspicious British populace somewhat knowledgeable of the nuances of royal life. Here in America, she has a whole new crop of rubes. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. The elite families of the South might not know English high society all that well, but they do know each other. So once Sarah's in, she's in. Getting into one house makes it easier to go on to the next one. And what's Sarah getting out of all this? Money, and lots of it. Rich people in the 18th century often lived well beyond their means and relied on credit and loans. So lending Sarah money doesn't seem like a big deal to them. As usual, she promises to pay them back. She's the queen's sister, after all. And because of her title, lots of important people want to meet her. In North Carolina, Sarah stays with Samuel Cornell, the richest man in the state. He introduces her to the governor. In Virginia, Sarah stays with the Page family, who have one of the largest houses in all the colonies. One of their friends is Thomas Jefferson, who often drops by for a drink. You know, Declaration of Independence author, third president Thomas Jefferson. It's possible that Sarah even met him. Sarah manages to make it all the way down to South Carolina before people get suspicious. Once again, it's the newspaper who outs her. 
Some columnists totally believe Sarah's royal identity and defend her honor against malicious lies, probably because the elite don't want to admit that they were duped, but others find her claims mighty hard to swallow. What kind of a princess doesn't travel with a carriage or servants? In May 1773, as Sarah is now 28, an article in the Virginia Gazette exposes Sarah's true identity as a transported convict and offers a reward for her capture. Sarah, dressed in her fineries, lowers the newspaper from her face, revealing the home around her. It's beautiful. It's everything she had always imagined her life to be one day. As she danced around as a maid in her master's parlor as a teenager, the fantastically decadent decor can only be described as regal. Her dream is coming true. But as she looks down at the newspaper once more, she notices something odd about the luxurious walls surrounding her. It's like they're closing in on her. Her heart beats faster as they draw closer and closer. The room, it's so small now. It feels like the one-room British shack she called home as a child. Sarah slams the paper down. No, she's never going back to that life, no matter what. It's 1773, and we're back where we started. A beautiful Charleston dinner party rages with pomposity. But all eyes are on the elegant British lady claiming to be the Queen of England's sister. As Sarah Wilson pulls out all the stops, pulling her latest job, she is rudely interrupted. Gasps and screams fill the air as an agent hired by Sarah's master crashes through the door and unceremoniously marches her off at gunpoint. What a particularly undignified ending for such a seemingly dignified lady. Looks like it's back to the kitchen for poor Sarah. But not so fast. If this new world has taught Sarah anything, it's that everything is for sale. She still has all that money she borrowed, and she uses it quickly to buy out the rest of her seven-year contract, paying off her debt to her master. And the master accepts. It was either break even or spend the next decade of his life watching a notoriously slippery and intelligent servant so she didn't escape. Obviously, he chose to cut his losses. And so now Sarah is free, and she decides that this time she's going to head north. It's August 1773 and a lady calling herself the Marchioness de Waldegrave arrives in New York City and causes quite a stir among high society. The newspaper tracks this lady's every movement. They reprint her elaborate backstories and ever-changing names. Yep, it's Sarah, all right. The woman who conned the richest and most powerful families in the American South. But now, the newspapers are in on it. They know she's a fake, and they find it hilarious. Their articles are making fun of her, Many of the pieces printed about Sarah use her titles ironically. They call her over-the-top things like Her Serene Highness the Princess. But the humor might have been lost on some readers. It might have actually helped Sarah's cause. In fact, over time, the ironic articles give way to ones that take Sarah's royal lineage at face value. It's like people forgot that she was a fraud. Now the papers report Sarah's activities as if she were a bona fide aristocrat. And Sarah never lets an opportunity pass. She's going to milk it for all it's worth. But the colonies are astir with change. It's the eve of American independence. No taxation without representation. Give me liberty or give me death. That's when Sarah finds herself at the center of revolutionary activity, Boston. Sarah arrives in the city in December 1773. About a week later, a group called the Sons of Liberty take it upon themselves to throw a bunch of tea into Boston Harbor. It was kind of a big deal. With all the patriotic fervor, 
people aren't looking so kindly on the English monarchy anymore. You'd think that Sarah would read the room and drop the whole queen sister thing. But even in this new political climate, Sarah is a celebrity. People clamor to know her opinions on democracy. She plays to both sides, appeasing those who are still loyal to the crown, while also being hip with the kids who are into rights and freedoms. In 1776, the United States of America is born. And in this brand new country, Sarah does the most American thing she can think of, rise to the very top. By 1777, Sarah finds her way into the house of a couple named Henry and Lucy Knox. Now she's going by the Duchess of Brattenburg, Princess of Frankfurt, and cousin to the Queen of Great Britain. Yep, now she's the Queen's cousin. In retrospect, maybe sister was too aggressive and cousin is more believable. Lucy Knox takes Sarah's claims with a huge grain of salt. Mostly, she just feels sorry for this woman who doesn't appear to have any friends or family. But Lucy's husband, Henry, just so happens to be the chief artillery officer in the Continental Army under the command of George Washington. And Sarah takes it upon herself to send the general a letter. We don't know what the letter said. All we know is that she shows it to Lucy Knox, who finds it amusing. But Lucy let her husband decide whether or not to pass it on to the general. Washington may or may not have ever received it. Still, it means that Sarah actually tried to con our first president. After the revolution, Sarah keeps on moving. Each month, she's in a new town. She can't stay in one place for long, otherwise people catch on to her. She's always running from something, never towards anything. And she never seems to make lasting friends. By now, Sarah's fame is on the wane. She's more of a curiosity than a celebrity. Most people suspect she's a fraud, but let her stay with them because she's entertaining. A few people think she's a bit mad and just can't help making up lies about herself. Others still genuinely believe her. But while people debate whether or not she's the real deal, Sarah, she struggles to survive. The cons manage to keep a roof over her head for a little while longer. But in 1780, while staying with a family in Maine, Sarah suddenly passes away. She's only 35 years old. It's about how long she would have been expected to live had she remained a servant in London. In the end, it seems nothing could save Sarah from the fate that was decided the day she was born. At least, her ruse allowed her to temporarily escape into a better, or at least more eventful life. One of Sarah's obituaries reads, "'Departed this life on Wednesday morning last at the house of Mr. John Costello, a strange lady,' who called herself the Duchess of Cronenberg, but is supposed to be one Sarah Wilson, a convict, who about nine years past traveled through the state of South Carolina, imposing upon the public under the name of Lady Carolina Matilda and called herself own sister to the Queen of Great Britain. The generosity of Mr. Costello in taking in the distressed person after she was forsaken by everyone is really worthy of being noticed. At the end of her life, Sarah is regarded as little more than an object of pity. Yet, even after her death, some newspapers continue to defend her and insist that she was really a princess. It's probably what Sarah would have wanted. Her fantasy lived on even after she was gone. Sarah Wilson was born in poverty, and the expectation was that she would stay there. But something must have compelled her to want more out of life. Maybe, deep down, she knew that wealthy people weren't any better or smarter than she was and passing as one of them was a way of rubbing it in their faces. Her deceptions proved that birth had nothing to do with a person's character, an idea that was just taking hold in the 18th century. 
Sarah probably got many of her ideas from the literature and newspapers of the day, which were filled with tales of mistaken identities. In an era of colonial expansion, people remade themselves all the time. It was easy for someone to disappear, only to emerge years later, Don Draper style, with a mysteriously acquired fortune and a new name. And there was no easy way to prove that someone was really who they said they were. This situation caused a lot of social anxiety, which is why a figure like Sarah caused such a sensation. It wasn't just about ascertaining identity. It was also about class. If anyone could pass as an aristocrat, well, what did that say about aristocrats? Did that mean aristocrats weren't all that special? How could you know someone's birth if anyone could just act the part? It's almost like nobility is a made-up thing. And the American colonies were the perfect place for Sarah to test this theory, as the story of Sarah Wilson is also the story of America. The revolution chipped away at ideas about class hierarchy, whereas in England, Sarah's acts were seen as crimes, Americans were more willing to embrace her. People weren't threatened by her actions. They were amused. It was like she was revealing the inherent absurdity of royalty, a revolutionary idea at the time. But while people may have enjoyed hearing about Sarah's exploits, all that running took a toll on her. Her life was a solitary one, with her only friends being the people who took pity on her, and only for a short time. She kept moving, always fleeing from her past crimes and past identities, Though her life may have been exciting, it was also probably very lonely. Though she paid a heavy price, Sarah's adventures outlive her. She managed to escape her fate and insert herself into history, interacting with some of the most important figures of her era, like a sort of Anna Delvey meets Forrest Gump. Newspapers memorialized her in dozens of articles, and even after her death, no one was completely sure of exactly who she was. So maybe in acting the part, Sarah actually became exactly what she wanted to be, a princess, straight out of the storybooks. As Sarah Wilson stared into the ornate mirrors of the aristocratic house she once cleaned as a child, she knew deep down she was a princess. The rest of the world just needed a little more convincing to realize it too. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Kirsten Liu. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast.